to Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31. We'll only use this 31st chapter as an introduction this morning. Proverbs chapter 31. And verse 10, the writer of the 31st chapter says, Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. Who can find a virtuous woman? Now, I used to say in jest that this was a good rhetorical question. Remember, a rhetorical question is a, que- is a question that generally demands a negative answer. You know, the Bible is filled with rhetorical questions where the writer of Scripture will ask a question, but he knows you know the answer, but it's a form of arguing, it's a form of rhetoric that carries a lot of weight by asking questions, making you answer it. Anybody who's talked much with me knows that I like to do that also, is ask questions and let you answer for yourself. But here we read, Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. Only one woman in the Word of God is described as a virtuous woman, and it's that woman that we want to review. See, Solomon tried a thousand women, and if you'll turn over just about three pages to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, you'll find his summary of his experience with a thousand women. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning at verse 26. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands as bands. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Behold, this have I found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account, which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. Solomon says, I've tried a thousand and I've counted one by one, and I guess going through a thousand wedding ceremonies, or whatever ceremony was involved with his 300 concubines, he said, I counted one by one and I could not find a good one. Among a thousand men, I'd find a good one. But among the women I've known, I found none. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. Well, there are such things as virtuous women, and that's what I want to encourage our women in today. Turn to the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth, and let's begin a study this morning of Ruth the Moabitess, who is the only woman in the Word of God specifically described as being a virtuous woman. And that description of her as a virtuous woman was not simply by God. It is given to her by her husband before he became her husband as something that was known of her by everyone in the city in which she lived. She had a reputation, though she was a Moabitess, and the, the combination is wonderful to see because the Moabites had the most perverse women. The Moabites were the ones that used fornication and whoredom by design to try to ensnare the hearts of the Israelites. Numbers chapter 25 is that chapter in your Bibles that describes the daughters of Moab committing whoredom with Israel. Remember, that's where Phinehas went into the tent and did the judgment of the Lord upon a couple in fornication. 
the daughters of Moab were designed for that. They were evil, forward, bold, wicked women. Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth from Moab turns out to be, in the word of God, the virtuous woman. And the Bible specifically says that, as we shall see. The book of Ruth. Let's begin at verse 1 and make a, make a study, verse by verse, of this book, going as quickly as we possibly can. The story begins, not with Ruth, but with a man named Elimelech. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Now this tells us exactly when the story of Ruth took place. Exact, as far as a period of 450 years. Acts chapter 13 tells us that for 450 years the judges ruled Israel. From Joshua to Samuel the prophet were 450 years of judges. You couldn't name half of them. Some of them you know. Samson, Gideon, Jephthah, Deborah, and then a whole pile of others that we don't give much attention to recorded for us in the book of Judges because it was the period of the Judges and Ruth follows immediately. Now in that period of time, there was a famine in the land. Can you remember the sermon that I preached to you that described a famine during the period of the Judges? And it doesn't even go by the name famine in the book of Judges or the word famine. It's when Gideon was raised up of the Lord to deliver Israel from the Midianites. Remember how the Midianites would come in at harvest time. They let Israel grow all they could. Then they'd come in at harvest time and steal everything. And Judges chapter 6 tells us they left Israel very impoverished because they had no sustenance, is how Judges chapter 6 puts it. That was a famine. Whether that was the famine that we have described here for us in verse 1, we don't know. But God often judged the people of Israel with famine. Reading the word of God, you can see that plainly. Sometimes he judged them with a sword when a nation would come against them in battle. Sometimes he judged them with famine. Sometimes it was with pestilence. But whatever the case, there was a famine in the land, and it was during the days of the judges. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now there's a man living in the little town of Bethlehem. and it's, it's interesting how this will all fit together as we go along, but it's called Bethlehem, Judah to remind us that it's the Bethlehem that Jesus Christ was born in, not the Bethlehem of Zebulun. There were two Bethlehems in Israel. You'll find them both mentioned in Scripture. This is Bethlehem, Judah. We live in Greenville, South Carolina. But I've been to Greenville, Michigan, and I hear tell there's a Greenville, North Carolina, and I believe there's Greenvilles in other states. Greenville's a popular name. Well, Bethlehem had two, so they called it Greenville, South Carolina here to designate this city and Bethlehem, Judah. Judah was as our state. It was the tribe that accompanied all the cities of Judah. This certain man lived in Bethlehem, Judah, and he went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, Moab was on the other side of the Jordan River. Remember how Israel came out of Egypt, came through the wilderness, and then had to they came up east of the Jordan River, had to cross the Jordan River west again to end up in the land of Canaan. Two of their tribes didn't want to cross it and stayed on the east side. On the east side were the Moabites and the Amorites. That's where they lived. 
Sihon, king of the Amorites, was a king that they destroyed under Moses before they got into the land of Canaan. And as I mentioned already as we began this study, Numbers chapter 25 tells us that Moab was a great enemy of Israel and used their women against Israel. If you'll recall from the book of Numbers, Balak was king over the Moabites, also called the Midianites. Be careful when you read your Bible. Moab and Midian, same thing. Moabites are Midianites. Midianites are Moabites. If you'll read Numbers 25, you'll see that. Balak tried to hire Balaam to go and curse from Mount Peor, the nation of Israel. Remember that? The king of the Moabites tried to get Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. When that didn't work, when that didn't work, the next device was to send their women in and attract the men and turn them to their own gods and destroy the separate identity of the nation of Israel, a wicked nation. But at this time, it must have been at peace with Israel because Elimelech, as we're going to see is, is his name from verse 2, sojourns there in the country of Moab for food. Now, this isn't the first time men have moved for food. Remember, Abraham took Sarah down into Egypt in the case of a famine in Genesis chapter 12. Isaac did the same thing in Genesis chapter 26. Jacob, in fact, went down to Egypt in the days of Joseph in order to obtain food during that famine. God deals sovereignly, as we believe, in his judgment upon nations. One nation will have plenty. It could even have been Moab. In fact, it was, because that's where he went for food. There's a wicked nation being blessed with a good economy, while the nation of Israel, the Lord's people, is suffering a famine. Now, does that make sense in light of what we've been studying recently in the book of Job, how that God deals with men? And you can't look at outward blessings as a sign of God's grace. In fact, statistically, if we were to use all the examples in Scripture, the fact that Moab was prospering, what was that a sign of? God's blessing or God's judgment? God's judgment. Because the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 7, Psalm 17 and 14, the wicked have their portion in this world. While the children of God are often suffering want, they're the ones enduring the famine. But it's a sign of God's chastening. And if it's God's chastening, then it's a sign of God's love. The famine was the evidence of love, the prosperity, the evidence of hatred. Now, I'm just saying that. I, just saying that, I stopped. Did I say that right? And I know that we're, we're, we're so indoctrinated to think the opposite way. Prosperity, proof of godliness. Gain is godliness, 1 Timothy 6. But the Lord's people will generally be poor and suffer afflictions. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Psalm 37 and about 19. How many? Many. many. Once in a while, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And we look at this poor woman, we're going to see that as we read chapter 1 of this little book. And the name of the man was Elimelech. That name means God is king. I like looking at Hebrew names not to prove anything, not to establish anything, not even to confirm anything, but to help you break up the syllables of the Hebrew words to see God's name, where it says Eli, 
that's a shortened form of Elohim, God. And Melech is king. God is king was his name. The Hebrews named their children something significant. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons, Malan and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. Don't get thrown by that word Ephrathites. Guess where Ephrath is? It's Bethlehem. If you'll go back to Genesis 35 and verse 19, when Jacob and Rachel are traveling through Palestine, Rachel dies, and he buries her in Ephrath. And the Holy Spirit adds in a little, a little phrase, which is Bethlehem. Bethlehem and Ephrath are the same place, just two different names. So they were Ephrathites, Bethlehemites. How about Micah 5.2, where it says that out of all the thousands of Judah, Jesus Christ would be, would be born in Bethlehem Ephratah. That's what you'll find over there among the thousands of... Let's look at Micah 5.2 just to clear up Ephrathites. You will run into Ephrathites frequently in your Bibles, and it's good to be satisfied that that is simply describing Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah. See, there's, there's her two names put together. Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. It was a small city among the thousands of cities in the state or tribe of Judah. Well, this man Elimelech and his wife Naomi and Malin and Chilion are four citizens of Bethlehem or Ephratah. That's why they're called Ephrathites. And they came, all four of them, into the country of Moab and continued there. Now, we need to be careful when reading a book like Ruth, and reading commentators on Ruth is interesting to see the number of assumptions they'll make about what the Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say that Elimelech sinned in going to Moab. However, however, the Lord had established his people in Israel. When Abraham went to Egypt, he was just a sojourner. Remember, he didn't have any property. God hadn't told him to stay anywhere. Same with Isaac. Same with Jacob. God put Joseph down there to bring them down. But once God established the nation of Israel, you were there. And if you were suffering famine, what should you do? Leave or repent? Repent. But if an individual man repents, that doesn't always mean that the rest of the nation is going to repent. And if the rest of the nation is not repenting, there may not be sustenance there, and God may use you moving to another place to find means. We're not, I'm not going to make an assumption. I know that Elimelech died rather quickly, which isn't a good sign of the Lord's blessing upon him in Moab, but we'll leave it at that. Elimelech, in verse 3, Naomi's husband died, and she was left and her two sons. Now, you've got this poor woman of Israel now living in Moab, not the friendliest territory, not the most righteous nation, and she's now without a husband. She's a widow with two boys. And whether she didn't give them good advice or whether they gave themselves advice, they went up and married two women of the Moabites. Verse 4, And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. 
and they dwelled there about ten years. Now, Malon married Ruth, and Chilion married Orpah. We can, we'll find that out in chapter 4 when we get there. The oldest son married Ruth, Malon. That will become more important as we proceed. But these two sons married two daughters of the land. Now, that was something God had specifically warned them not to do. And God's warned us not to do the same thing. And he doesn't mean don't marry a Mexican. He marries don't marry a worldling is what we're not to do in our homes. Lot destroyed his family by corrupting his daughters and his sons in the city of Sodom. Do you remember what happened when the angel told Lot, go get your daughters and get your sons and get them out of the city? Lot went and said to his sons-in-laws, who had married his daughters, up, get you out of this place. The Lord's going to destroy it. And they laughed because they couldn't believe Lot trying to tell them God was going to destroy the place when he had lived there for so long. He had corrupted their morals. There was no fear of God before their eyes anymore and no appreciation for righteousness because of evil association. And we know what happened to Lot. We know what Lot's two daughters did with Lot. Where did that come from? It came from watching TV in Sodom. To press the analogy to the 20th century. It's corrupting morals by exposing our young people to the evil morals of this world. We have got to remain separate as much as we can within God's given reason. I mean, we can't go out of this world, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but while we're in this world, we need to limit our exposure to the fornicators and adulterers of this world. Now, God had expressly condemned foreign marriages. Keeping your finger in Ruth, look at Deuteronomy the seventh chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 7. God, my friends, is looking for a holy seed. The book of Malachi, the second chapter, tells us that. He wants holy children. Malachi chapter 2 tells us the way you get holy children is by husbands loving their wives and not running off with other women and divorcing them. But Deuteronomy chapter 7 tells us we get holy children by not corrupting our children with evil women or evil husbands. Verse 2 of Deuteronomy 7, And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, that is, the nations of of Canaan, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So, in this way, will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. One of the most important things we as a church and we as the people of God can do is make sure our children marry believers, saints, God's people. It's not a matter of, well, she just can't find someone, so we're taking the next best thing available then she ought not to take anything if she can't, because the Lord will provide. Listen, one thing the Lord did, I mean, the Lord provided for Adam and there wasn't even a woman around. He can provide. He provided for Isaac when there was no woman around. Remember, Abraham sent his servant into a foreign nation. Sort of like what Terry Kruger did. Sort of, in big quotation marks, 
what Terry Kruger did, but going into another nation to get a wife, one that feared the Lord. Because Abraham knew the family, the stock she was coming from was good, and they feared the Lord. Why did Jacob go to Laban? Did Jacob go to Laban because he, was, because he knew that Laban would put him up? Or did he go to Laban for a wife? Read it. Isaac and Rebekah were crushed that Esau had married the women of this world, and so they told Jacob where to go and find wives. We better make sure we do the same. God condemns here to Israel marrying women of other nations. You know what happened to Solomon? As soon as Solomon was made king, what's the first thing he did according to 1 Kings 11.1? 1? He married the daughter of Pharaoh. The first, before God even appeared to him, he was on his road downhill. Look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13. The Jews had a great problem with marrying the women of other nations. I don't know if Jewish women were ugly. I don't know if they didn't have any personality. But whatever the case, they had problems with it over and over and over again. Now, wouldn't you think that if you had just spent 70 years in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, and you came back and looked at the city of Jerusalem, and the last time you remembered, if you were old enough, it was beautiful. Solomon's temple was there. Now you come and it's, you know, inhabited by the wild beasts of the forest. It's a, it's a junk pile. You'd think you'd have learned a lesson about God's judgment. But what did they do as soon as they got back? Started marrying women of the nations round about them. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23. Remember, Nehemiah is one of the leaders of the rebuilding in Jerusalem. Nehemiah 13, 23 in those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them, and cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives. Is, can you get language any stronger than Nehemiah 13, 23 through 27? You've heard me refer in my sermon on rude preachers before to Nehemiah. He wasn't exactly your cultured B.J. graduate. I mean, he contended with them, cursed them, smote them, plucked off their hair, and he forced them to swear. But notice what he was dealing with. What was the subject that got him so angry? Marrying wives of other nations and of other gods. That's what got him so angry. And he appeals to them by saying, there's never been a king like Solomon. There's never been a wiser man. Look at Solomon. If outlandish women can ruin a man like Solomon, what do you think they're going to do to you? That's his appeal, his logical appeal. We better make sure we guard our marriages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, A woman is allowed only to marry in the Lord. Right. 
in the Lord and not outside the Lord. Some might say, yeah, but everyone today believes in the Lord in America. <clears throat> then we better draw the Lord the way Paul drew it in, the same, in his second epistle to the same church when he said there's more than one Jesus in this world. We better make sure that we limit our children to marrying someone of the same faith. You say, limit them? I'm going to do it if you don't. You want to see how fast a person can get excluded? Marry someone who's not a member of this congregation. You say, but what if they're good, godly, and love the Lord? I don't care what you call them. Marry someone who doesn't belong to this congregation or another congregation or believe exactly the way we do, and you'll be excluded for departing from the tradition of Paul. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, we're supposed to do that. When he said, I command you, brethren, to avoid any that, mar- that walk differently than the, his tradition which he taught by word and by epistle. Let's come back now to the book of Ruth and look at these two men who went contrary to the expressed and revealed will of God and married two Moabite women. Now they did the marrying in verse 4. And in verse 5, God does the judging. And Malin and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Now Naomi's in a real fix. She's in the land of Moab. She lost her husband first. She lived a few years with her sons and their wives. And now her sons die. She's got two... She's a widow. And she's got two widows to take care of in a strange land. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Because as we're going to see, Naomi was a righteous woman. But here she is in a mess. But now notice God's judgment upon them. Both of them died. Do we need to wonder about the judgment? Was this God's judgment or not? Absolutely, because we read it in Deuteronomy 7. That he would judge and would destroy suddenly were the words, if you'll recall, from Deuteronomy 7 and verse 4, for marrying strange wives. They did it, and they died for it. Now, one of these women was named Ruth, Orpah and Ruth. Let me give you just a few things about Ruth to stimulate your interest and imagination about this woman. Proverbs 31 says, Who can find a virtuous woman? Ruth. This Moabite woman, married against the will of God, was a virtuous woman in her later life. You're going to see a conversion like you wouldn't believe in some of the most precious words in all of Scripture as she professes her conversion. But she is the only woman in all of Scripture specifically set forth as a virtuous woman. Though Solomon may have denied a good woman among the thousand he tried, that doesn't mean that there aren't good women because Ruth is an example to us of a good woman. Even though she was from the land of Moab, even though Malon sinned in marrying her, guess who she mothered? The Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5 remind us that Ruth was one of the mothers of Jesus Christ. She was in the lineage of Jesus Christ, one of the Moabite women. What the Lord can do in spite of our sin. Some might, a fatalist would say, well, see, the Lord moved 
Malin, and he fulfilled the will of the Lord in marrying Ruth. And I'll say, yes, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong unto us and to our children that we do all the words of this law. The revealed thing was not to marry foreign wives. They sinned. And yes, the Lord can overrule the wrath of man to praise him, which he did in the case of Ruth. I have preached recently about the Lord looking for a few good men, haven't I? Remember David's chosen men? Remember Ezekiel 22 and verse 30 where the Lord says, I sought for a man among them? Well, the Lord's also looking for a few good women. You can read about it in 1 Timothy 2. You can read about it in 1 Peter 3. The Lord's looking for a few good women, not a whole lot, because there'll never be a whole lot. And you ought to be glad there's not going to be a whole lot because that means you're rarer. The, the value of any commodity is a function of its scarcity. And the scarcer a commodity, the more valuable it is. That's why gold is more valuable than silver, because it's scarcer to the tune of about 30 times. And if you look at the prices, generally the price of gold will be 30 times higher than silver. And platinum will be 50% higher than gold, because it's relatively scarcer. And that's why the 31st chapter of Proverbs says, Who can find a virtuous woman? Not many, for her price is far above rubies. You just as well dig in your backyard and find a ruby as to go look for a virtuous woman because they're hard to find. But we've got one here. And girls and daughters and women ought to be encouraged that here we're going to see a woman who God calls a virtuous woman and see if we can't emulate her character. And she certainly had some character. You know, I read in the book of Job, at the end of Job's life, that the Lord gave him his sons and his daughters back. Seven sons and three daughters. Could you give me the names of Job's seven sons? No. Why? Why can't you give them to me? Memories failing? Or did God not deem it worthy to give their names? Can you give me the three names of, their, of his daughters? Yes, you can. What was Job known for? His seven sons or his three daughters? What kind of daughters do you think Job had? when it says he was a perfect man. I'll bet he had three virtuous daughters and they were known far and wide and God the Holy Spirit gives us their names and ignores the sons. There's no doubt about it that a man appreciates his sons because they're a chip off the old block and they're going to keep the family name going and they're going to get the lion's share of the inheritance. That's true from Genesis, the third chapter, all the way down through Scripture. But I want to say something to men who don't get as excited about their daughters. Let me remind you of what the Bible says about Job. Job was commended for his daughters, not his sons. I read about Philip over in Acts chapter 21 that he was commended for four daughters that prophesied, virgin daughters that prophesied, pure, God-blessed with gifts of the Spirit. What's he known for? His four daughters. Look at Psalm 144 with me. Psalm 144. I don't know about you, but I appreciate value. I appreciate value. And I believe all of you do when you stop and think about it. Well, now, if Solomon couldn't find a good woman among a thousand, but he could find a good man, which is more valuable by its scarcity, a good woman or a good man? 
a good woman, based on what Scripture says, based on Solomon's experience. Therefore, to raise a good daughter ought to be a thrilling experience and opportunity for any of us families to raise a good daughter, at least equal to a son. There are ways in which a son has the preeminence because he's going to keep the family name. He's going to have the inheritance, as the Bible describes plainly. He is the chip off the old block. When the man goes to the grave, he's got some more Smiths or Crosbys or Scotts following him if he's had some sons. If he's only had daughters, he has nothing. And that's why it was so important in Israel for a kinsman to come and raise up seed and name them after that departed man. That's how important it was. But look at Psalm 144 and verse 12. Let's get verse 11. David's describing here his prayer to God, Rid me and deliver me from the hand of strange children, whose mouth speaketh vanity, and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as cornerstones, polished after the similitude of a palace. Now here, then he goes on to ask God to bless him economically. But in verse 12, he prays for his sons, but he doesn't ignore his daughters. He prays that his daughters may be as polished cornerstones in the palace of God, like in a palace, that they would be objects of beauty to behold. And I am making this point to remind our fathers of the importance of their daughters and not to neglect their daughters. Because if we can raise some virtuous women, and it starts now, you're not going to do it when they're 20. You're not going to do it when they're 18. It starts now. If we can do that, we're going to have something that God commends highly and is described as being scarcer than rubies, according to the 31st of Proverbs. Now, we read Isaiah 3 this morning. Ruth isn't going to look anything like Isaiah 3. When we get done with Ruth, you're going to see two big opposites, Isaiah 3, 20th century America, and Ruth. By the way, let me just comment briefly on Isaiah 3 and 16. It says the daughters of Zion walk haughtily. See, it didn't say the daughters of Moab. It says the daughters of Zion. How many of you ever watched PTL? Now, there is a claimed daughter of Zion, right? Claims to be a Christian. Claims to be not only a Christian, one of God's ministers. The evangelist, Tammy Faye Baker. Now, take a look at that woman. Did she fit Isaiah 3 or is she going to fit Ruth 1, 2, 3, and 4? She fit Isaiah 3, yet claiming to be Christian. I'm not worried about the women in vogue. I couldn't care less. Let them live that way. God's going to judge them. I mean, when one of them shows some interest in the truth, I'll be there to preach as soon as anyone. I'm worried about the daughters of Zion. We need to guard our daughters lest they behave like that, lest they behave like Tammy Faye Baker. Look at how accepted PTL was with her on it. Because, see, women love it. Whenever a woman can act forward and insubmissive, and wear all that gaudy clothing, and if there was any woman that could match Isaiah 3 in her wardrobe, it was Tammy Faye. Haven't you read the newspaper accounts of what they've been trying to auction off and what she took out of that place, and where she went and what she, where she went to shop and what she paid in her shopping? 
Haven't you ever seen her hands? There's, there's one or two fingers without a ring on them. And the makeup, a quarter of an inch thick. And the hairdos and the hair pieces, etc., etc., etc. She fit Isaiah 3. And yet she was accepted by millions of so-called Christian women, daughters of Zion, in our nation. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And the more we expose our daughters to that junk, they're going to behave the same way. We have got to make a difference. I like sitting down and watching Tammy Faye Baker with my daughter and pointing out how ridiculous the woman looks. Especially that Newsweek magazine that had her on the front. It was so good just to show the children how ridiculous she looks, show them a few verses in the Bible where they can see, even with the eyes of a seven-year-old, the big difference. We need to do that. We live in a generation of Tammy Faye Bakers in the so-called Christian churches. We need to make sure that our girls stand differently, that they're meek and quiet and are shame-faced, bashful, shy, sober, instead of the frivolous, forward women of our generation. There'll be more to come on that point when I get to that series, Sins of the 20th Century. But enough said on that. The scriptures are given for our learning. Romans 15.4 says that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. When you read the book of Ruth, there's no prophecy given. God's not talked about much. There's no warfare fought. There's no open deliverance. I mean, it's a different kind of a book. But this book is given for our learning. And the learning comes through looking at a role model. And that role model is Ruth. God chose of all the women that were in the line of Christ to tell us about Ruth. What do you know about Mary? What do you know about Mary? Very little. But you're going to know a whole lot about Ruth before we get done with this book. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable, and this book of Ruth is profitable for us to read and see what we can glean from it. Not just read through it for a historical account of one of Christ's ancestors, because there's a lot more than that involved in it, but to see her character. In this book, we're going to learn three things. One, God's providence, that we ought not to worry when things look like they're going bad. Two, the character of a godly and virtuous woman. And three, Christ's lineage, looking ahead to Christ, that here a Moabite woman came back and lived in Bethlehem and was one of the great-grandmothers of Jesus Christ. God, surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. Did that wrath, did the wrath of Malin, who married Ruth, end up praising Jesus Christ or God? Most definitely. Now we've covered verses 1 through 5 that gives us the historical setting of this book and the story of Ruth. Now Naomi is stuck in Moab with two widows. Not a good situation. And we read in verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. An important lesson to learn from this about Naomi. There are times when you may have to separate yourselves from the Lord's people. For instance, trips to China. But as soon as the trip in China is over, Lord didn't stay there. He came home. And that's just one wild example from our congregation. But Naomi, as soon as she heard there was bread back there, she came. As soon as Michael Niker hears there's a job here, he'll be here. He's not going to hear about a job and then say, well, 
I'm not sure if I want to go now. He's made his commitment, and I know his heart. I believe before the Lord, he'll be here. And Naomi's giving us the, an example of Matthew 6:33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. As soon as she knew she could provide for her family, she was back in his, or she was going to be back in Israel. Verse 7. Wherefore, as a result of her purpose and hearing that Israel now had bread, she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. Now there's something we're going to see further, but I think it's important to mention now. This Naomi was a wise woman in cultivating relationships with her daughters-in-law that were incredible. What are these two Moabite daughters-in-law traveling with her back to Israel for? Because she maintained a good family relationship with her in-laws. Now, I know we all have trouble from time to time with our in-laws. I have it myself. But the more effort that is made... They're people too, and once they get used to you after a few years in the married state, you can usually get along with them okay. And this woman cultivates a relationship that in the end results in an ancestor of Jesus Christ by getting along well with her daughters-in-law. Now, all three of them are traveling along. It doesn't say anything about her asking them. They're just going. We're going to see more in a minute. And it's very interesting that she would have that tight of a bond. I mean, how many daughters are really in love with their mother-in-law? Yeah, I look at some of the smiling faces out there and realize the situation. And that's true with many families. Now, sometimes your mother-in-law may be a real gem and you love her like your own mother, maybe more than your own mother. That happens sometimes. But for a Moabite woman... To want to stay with a widow? I mean, what's a woman going to do with a widow? Especially an Israelite widow who's now leaving home, houses, friends, security, language, everything. Verse 8. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Kissing, kissing is either a greeting or it's a way of saying goodbye. She kissed them goodbye, go back to your mother's house. She probably got near the border of Israel and realized, wait a minute, what am I doing to these poor women? Who's going to marry a Moabite woman in the land of Israel? They don't know the language. They don't know the customs. They don't know our God. It's such right down the list. They're leaving their family. They're leaving their friends. I shouldn't require this of them. And now she uses what is known as dissuasion. Dissuasion. I have been, I've seen people look at me with a jaundiced eye, and I've been told that sometimes I go a little too far in trying to dissuade people from doing what's right. Like Tim Weir, Jr., Remember what I told him at the airport? Tim, let's just wait a while because I think you're going to fizzle out. Like my daughter who came to me and said, I want to make an appointment to talk to you about baptism. I ignore it for a while. And then when I do talk to her, I tell her 
why, do I, why should I baptize you? All you're going to do is grow up to be about 15 or 16. Tommy Motorcycle's going to come along. You're going to jump on the back and go out and blaspheme the name of the Lord. But it's very effective. It's very effective use of persuasion. Dissuasion is a subtle use of persuasion. Let me prove that to you. First of all, Naomi's using it. Now, do you think Naomi wants these two daughters-in-law to go back and worship the gods of the Moabites? No, she's using a lot of wisdom here. Dissuasion, by contrasting two alternatives, oftentimes makes it clearer to choose the right course. If you just say to someone, you ought to be baptized, it doesn't carry a whole lot of weight. But if you say, you don't really want to be baptized, why don't you just go out in the world and get your full of it while you're here, and then you can die and face your maker. <laughs> what, what is the most powerful form of appeal? The first or the last? The last, the dissuasion. I'm going to get to some examples in a minute. The first value of it is it draws the contrast sharper than they may have it in their mind. When I talk to my daughter Rachel about Tommy Motorcycle, she gets very frustrated with me and says, other girls may grow up and do that, but why do I have to grow up and do with it? Right now, she is establishing in her mind a resistance and a rejection of that. I, see, I go into these long stories with her about Tommy Motorcycle. I know all about Tommy Motorcycle because that's what I was. So I can tell her all about it, what Tommy's going to say to her, what Tommy's going to do, how cool Tommy's going to be. But Tommy ain't going to have no character, and he ain't going to have money in the bank. Not fit subject for a husband. But as I go through that with her, I am the Lord helping me, and by His grace, building a rejection of that frivolous type of vision by identifying the cost often exposes weak resolutions. When someone comes to me and wants to be baptized or join the church, what's one of the first things I tell them? It's going to hurt. You're going to have to pay a price. And sometimes that turns people off and they go their merry way. I can think of a particular family right now where they sat down, very interested in the Greenville church. And I said, well, there's an important thing I want to tell you. You will have to pay a dear price. And it very well may be your family members. You may have to leave your parents and separate from them. And laid all that out. And the next thing, I, I didn't, they didn't tell me there. They just sat there in relative shock. And then later I heard that that was just too much for them. Blessed be God. I don't want them in this congregation. You say, well, no evangelist in Scripture ever talked that way. Jesus, my Savior, talked that way. He said, think not that I am come to bring peace. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And a man's foes shall be those of his own household. And he said, if a man is, does not hate father and mother, brother, sister, daughter, sons, lands, family, friends, they're not worthy of me. He that will not lose his life for my sake is not worthy to be my disciple. That's just the same thing I tell them. But see, that's dissuasion for somebody who has a weak resolution. For somebody who knows what they want to do and God is more important than family, we want them and they'll hang in there. For someone who friends are more important, when you put it to them, they'll leave. And you're going to see the effect of Naomi's dissuasion in just a minute. Remember one time Jesus was preaching rather hard in John chapter 6, being downright 
difficult to understand and hard. First of all, he talked about eating his flesh and his blood, which they didn't know what he was, they thought he was talking about cannibalism. And he knew that. Remember, he was an omnipotent, omniscient God. And then he taught that no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Why, none of you can believe on me or come to me unless God draws him. Now, that's hard preaching, and it's preaching difficult to understand. And his disciples came to him and said, that's a hard saying. So he repeats himself for emphasis. And from that time on, his disciples walked no more with him except for the twelve. The multitude went away. So what did he do to his disciples? He turned and he said, Oh, I thank you, brethren, for holding in there. Don't let those derelicts and those committing mutiny discourage you. Did he say that? He said, Will you go away also? Will you go away also? And see, it drew a very sharp decision that the disciples had to make right there on the spot. He brought it to a decision, a moment of decision. Peter had to say something. Either I'm going away or I'm not going away. And what did he say? Where shall I go? Well, see, Jesus forced him to think, if he's not with the Savior, where is he going to be? And he said, where shall we go, Lord? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Dissuasion will often draw a sharp line and get rid of riffraff, and it will strengthen and confirm the resolution of those who are serious. Look at Luke chapter 14. I know we're running a rabbit, but haven't you ever wondered why Naomi worked so hard to get rid of Ruth and Orpah? And we, we've got verses to go through. She's going to do, do her best to get rid of them. Look at Luke 14 as Jesus Christ gets rid of his crowd that came down out of the football stadium to the front. Jesus was never a beggar for men. Look at Luke 14 and verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him. Now here he's got a great multitude. He's filled the stadium and he cuts loose in Luke 14, 25. And he turned and said unto them, If you want a life filled with rose petals, if you want the prosperity of God in your life, come and follow me. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's some pain involved in bearing a cross. Verse 28, and he appeals to them by saying, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him. You, you may never have put the context together here. The example of counting the cost is the cost of discipleship. When you're going to build a tower, you sit down and make sure... You can get the mortgage, you've got the down payment, and you've got some reserve contingency funds in case, you know, some thieves take your ceiling joices. You're going to make sure you can finish the tower because if you can't finish it, everybody who drives by and sees this tower two-thirds of the way up is going to laugh at you. And so everyone that follows Christ and doesn't hang in there and continue to the end shall be ashamed. That's what he's saying there. And he's using it He's saying, measure the cost, friends. There's going to be pain. You're going to bear a cross, and you're going to lose family members. You've got to hate them relative to me. 
And then he says in verse 33, So likewise, see, in the same manner as the two examples, and I'm skipping the other one, Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. And that's what I, I pose to people. You're going to have to forsake the things of this world. You're going to have to be weird once in a while. You may not be wearing the same things to high school. You may not be talking the same language. You may not be able to do the same activities. But Jesus Christ said it for me, and he used it when a great multitude followed after him. It's called dissuasion, and it's a powerful form of rhetoric to get rid of those who aren't serious and to confirm those who are. Now, someone who's serious, when they hear this, what does it do to them? It bolsters them. Lord, I can do it. I can forsake the family. I can bear the cross. I'm willing to do it. I am counting the cost. When I left Detroit, I counted the cost. I just wish there was a bigger cost to have taken, a bigger price to have paid. And for a true child of God, that will be the response. The other reason that you use dissuasion is that it will blunt vain ideas that some people have to follow the Lord. Look at Matthew chapter 8. I'm giving you three values of dissuasion and why you may have wondered sometimes, do I take people who ask me to be baptized and tell them all the bad reasons or why they shouldn't? And here, here's another example that Jesus Christ who obviously is a great pattern for all of us, used. Beginning at verse 18 of Matthew 8, Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. <laughs> That's not very nice. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast made an excellent choice. Thou shalt have great reward in heaven. Look what he said. The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Here's a man that in his cockiness comes and says to the Lord, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus, instead of telling him that that was a good decision, and that he'd sustain him, and that thou can, thou, you know, you're able to do all things through Christ which strengtheneth you, he said, wait a minute, the foxes may have holes to live in, the birds may have nests to live in, I don't have any place. You don't want to come with me. And that's the bottom line of what he's saying. Dissuasion. Three reasons. It contrasts alternatives more clearly in a person's mind so they choose the right one. Remember Jesus said, will you go away also? Well, Peter had to, Peter had to answer. What was he going to say? It drew a very sharp line between two opposites or two alternatives. The second purpose for dissuasion is it identifies the cost. Do you want to tell people the cause? Do we want someone getting baptized who thinks there's no commitment in the cause of Christ? No. Dissuasion is also used to blunt vain ideas that someone can easily do it and that there are no hardships. Remember Joshua before he died? I love Joshua chapter 24. Joshua is just about to die as a good minister and as a good pastor over that congregation. He, he listens to them say, we will serve the Lord, Joshua, after you die. And he says, you cannot serve the Lord. The Lord's a holy and a jealous God. You can't serve him. And they said, but, but we will serve him. You should, it, Joshua 24 is most interesting, but we will serve him. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll find that they did serve him for as long as he did remain 
And for every elder that was under him, Israel served the Lord. And that generation served the Lord faithfully until they died. But notice how Joshua made the commitment. Dissuasion. He said, you can't serve the Lord. He wasn't going to let them try to serve the Lord halfway. He was saying either it's all the way or no way. Back to Ruth. Back to Ruth. We'll try to get through Orpah's dissuasion and we'll call it a morning. Naomi did not want these two girls in Israel unless they were committed to Israel's religion and Israel's customs. She was a wise woman. And you're going to see me doing it from time to time. And don't think me mean to my daughter or anyone else. I'm doing it for a purpose, and I think I have good scriptural grounds. Friends, baptism isn't what it, isn't what it was in the church I was raised in, and it's not what it is in most of the churches you're raised in. Just something you do and basically forget about. It is a life long commitment and as long as I know where you're living I will be after you to live up to it usually from the pulpit but I'll go after you individually if you depart from your profession because that's what remember Hebrews 10 is all about holding fast that profession we want dedicated people being baptized and following our Savior now, in verses 8 and 9, Naomi is using dissuasion. I gave you that background to, tell, to explain why this woman, who obviously loved her daughters-in-law sufficiently to have built a relationship that they wanted to be with her, are trying to get, her to go home, get them to go home. But it's, out of, it's an out of a concern that they be dedicated to live properly in the land of Israel. She says, go, in verse 8, return each to her mother's house. Go back to your own families. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. That doesn't mean they went to the cemetery every day and put flowers out. It means that those who are now dead, they once treated well by being good wives. Malin and Chilion, the dead. You've dealt well with the dead and you've dealt well with me since they died. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest. Now I may, one practical point you're going to find me enjoying in the book of Ruth is Naomi's pragmatic approach to life. When you see a single person, what should be one of the number one concerns, if not the number one concern, for you to help them with? Living a good single life or getting married? Getting married. You're going to see it, and I, Naomi's famous for it, as you'll see before we get through this book. Naomi says in verse 9, The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. See, she's praying a blessing upon them. Go back, find yourselves some husbands, and I pray that God's blessing will be upon you, and rest will be upon you in the houses of your husbands. Because the, the source of rest in this life is with a good husband for a woman, and it's with a good woman for a man. The Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So when I find a single man, I try to get him married. Brother Sam Jones, are you listening? I try to get them married because my God told me what to do. He said it's not good for a man to be alone. He said in 1 Corinthians 11 and 11, Neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. And Naomi here is a practical, pragmatic, good mother-in-law. Instead of saying, go back and put up a picture of my boys on your dresser and remember them every day, 
She says, go back and get yourself some husbands and be at rest. And I pray the Lord will bless you kindly for your kindness that you've shown to me. And then she kissed them and they lifted up their voice and wept. A great deal of emotion between these three women. And they said unto her, surely we will return with thee unto thy people. Don't make us go away. Surely, they swore. That's the way God swore when he said, surely I will bless thee. Surely, we're not going to leave you. We want to go back with you. Sounds a whole lot like that man in Matthew 8, doesn't it? Lord, I'll follow you whithersoever you go. And they said, surely we shall go back with you. Now, Naomi's already been through dissuasion stage one. Now it's time for dissuasion stage two. And she says in verse 11, Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb? I mean, what are you going with me for? Are you expecting me to have two more boys that you're going to marry? That they may be your husbands? She understands the pragmatic approach to life that women ought to be married and men ought to be married. So she's appealing to them, Wait a minute, am I going to give you sons where we're going? Turn again, my daughters, verse 12. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. She understands that she's too old to have a husband, but she doesn't think that about her daughters-in-law. They're young daughter-in-laws. So they're younger, so she wants husbands for them. Notice the concern this woman has for these daughters. She wants them to have a peaceful life, and being a widow, my friends, is not a peaceful life. Having a husband providing for a woman is the way that God has ordained it for the most part. I am too old to have a husband. If I should say... I have hope. <laughs> we don't know how old she was, but she must have been old enough not to have any hope. She, she said, if I should say, I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would you tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? What she's saying is, if I was to daydream right now and say that there's some hope for me and I was to get married tonight and I was to immediately conceive... And not only did I conceive, but I had sons. You're going to wait around for them until they're grown? Now, that's not all, that's not unscriptural. Remember Judah in Genesis chapter 38? Tamar was married to Ur, Judah's son. Ur died, so Judah had her married to Onan, the second son. Onan died. And the third son Judah had was a little boy, and he said, Baby, you're going to have to wait until she was grown. Problem was, Judah forgot about Shua had got grown, and Tamar had to remind him about it in a rather graphic way in Genesis chapter 38. Not totally unusual for someone to wait in a situation like that. Because, see, that would, the, the situation of Judah and his sons with Tamar would apply perfectly to this. Because who had to marry Ruth? Any other brothers that Malin had. And she's saying, well, what are you waiting for? Me to have some brothers, some more sons? Verse 13, would ye stay for them from having husbands? She's asking them, wait a minute, are you going to wait, you know, 16, 18, 20 years to wait, for your, to wait for these sons without having husbands? Would you stay for them, that is, boys she might have theoretically, from having husbands that you could have right now if you'd get out and get to work? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. She sorrows more for the two sons than she does for herself. She sorrows that the Lord's hand has gone out and killed her sons, not for her sake, but for their sake, that they are now widows. 
And they lifted up their voice and wept again. Oh, they're still boo-hooing and bawling as women will when they leave close family relations. But all of a sudden we have a manifestation here in this verse of why she was using dissuasion and its effectiveness. They lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clave unto her. And she now she goes into stage three in just a second in verse 15, but notice what happened. Orpah, who 45 seconds earlier had said what? In verse 10, surely we will return with thee unto thy people. Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. 45 seconds later, she's blown out. By Naomi, describing in detail the situation. Listen, girls, I'm not going to have sons. And are you going to wait around to get married? You need husbands. You need to be at rest. And you're not going to get them from me. Go home and get them. And Orpah says, boy, she did draw the distinction rather clearly here of what it's going to be like. And see, when you use dissuasion, it draws the two alternatives clearly in the person's mind. And she chose the one. She chose the carnal things to go after a husband rather than what Ruth is going to choose. And so, Naomi now moves to the third stage of dissuasion to try to get rid of Ruth. In, you know what I mean by that. Get rid of her if she's not sincere. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. I mean, why are you trying to be different? There's your sister. Go. Go with her. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. She's doing it. Go ahead and do it. And you know, oftentimes, all it takes is one person to do something and the rest will follow because in general, people are sheep. Billy Graham crusade workers know that. That's why they plant workers in the audience to get up and walk down toward the front because people will follow. Men are sheep. And Naomi's now appealing to Ruth, why don't you just follow your sister and go back? Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Sister-in-law, excuse me, instead of a sister. And Ruth said, and we'll conclude with this statement, verse 16, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. There comes a place where someone who is sincere will ask you to stop trying to dissuade me. <laughs> you know, they'll write a letter that will, will say, as I read to you a couple Sundays ago, I still want to be baptized, I haven't fizzled out, and I'm doing the three things you've told me to do, except the one because you won't let me talk to you. You know, she's appealing to me, stop the dissuasion. I haven't fizzled out. Now, Naomi has done it three times with Ruth, three stages of trying to dissuade her to go home. And finally, it comes to the place where Ruth says, entreat me not to leave thee. Quit begging me to go. Quit begging me to go. I want to stay. For whither thou goest, and these are some of the most precious words of the word of God, whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. She takes the name of the Lord her God in an oath, saying, The Lord kill me, and do more than that to me if I don't follow you where you go 
They didn't know where they were going. You know, Ruth didn't. Ruth didn't know where Naomi was going. She's living the security of her home country. I'll go wherever you go. In verse 16, I will lodge where you lodge. She's leaving her own house, her mother's house that Naomi said to go and return to. I'll live in whatever you've got. And friends, Naomi had nothing. Nothing. As you're going to see, she was at absolute poverty level. I'll lodge wherever, if it's in a tent, if it's in someone's stable, I'll lodge where you lodge. Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Thy people shall be my people. The customs, the language, the friends, the family, the security, the comfort of the Moabites is gone. I'll make your people my people. I'll be happy with your people. I'll get used to living like they do and speaking their language. Thy God shall be my God. The God of Israel, the God that you have to keep all these laws that I've observed you keeping for the last several years, I'll serve that God. I'll keep those laws. I'll follow you. That God's going to be my God too, not the gods of the Moabites. Where thou diest, will I die. You may die before me because you're older, but I'm going to stay right there. I'm not going to be coming back to Moab. I'm there for good. Where you die, you can count on it. I'll be laid to rest beside you at some future date. And there will I be buried. She's not saying, but, but if I die, you know, take my bones back to Moab. An absolute and complete separation from family, friends, nation, home, lands, security, and comfort for the God and the people of God of Israel. And then she swears by saying, the Lord do so to me. That is, kill me. That's the last thing she mentioned. The Lord do so to me. And more also, if aught but death part thee and me, nothing but death will separate me from you because of your God. Notice again the appeal to the Lord God of Israel. She's just not going to follow Naomi. She's going to follow the Lord of Naomi and Naomi, who happens to be one of the people of that God. And that's something that we all ought to, and I believe most of us have, have a conviction and resolution in our minds that only death will separate us from following the God of the Bible and from following the people that worship that God, that we'll give up family, friends, houses, lands, jobs. And most of us have done that in one way or another as we've borne the cross for the sake of Christ and have forsaken the things of this world for his kingdom. May the Lord bless us to come back this evening and continue further in looking at the providence of God in the lives, lives of Naomi and Ruth and in her godly character.